Have you ever walked past the dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash. Do you know what it feels like to be spit on your face and have trash shoved down your throat? Do you know what it feels like to dig your own grave? Do you know what it feels like to have your throat snatched from ear to ear? Do you know what it feels like to be torched alive? Do you know what it feels like to be humiliated and be impaled upon on a cross and left to bleed to death for your amusement? You have never felt a single ounce of pain your whole life. Did you want to inject as much misery in our lives as you can, just because you can? You had everything you wanted. Your Mercedes wasn't enough, you brat. Your golden you need enough, to shut cross. the fuck your up. Your phone wasn't enough. Your vodka. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and Kevin. Coming back at you with episode 25, April is the Cruelest Month, Cho Sung Hui and the Virginia Tech Massacre. Well done. Thank you. I practiced. (laughs) (laughs) This is another quarantine edition, if you aren't sick of me saying that already. I'm not. Okay, good. (laughs) (laughs) I was like waiting for a reaction from somebody, (laughs) but yeah, so... This is full week number two with our extra dog who's behind us. He's our stunt double. <laughs> I am going to have him meet a retired man who would like a puppy. This is not a puppy. <laughs> Damaged goods. But yeah. He's a sweet dude. Yeah. Well, not the guy, the dog. I haven't met the guy yet, but his picture looks like he's a sweet, sweet (laughs) dude. Yeah, it sounds like he's got some health issues and stuff. And so he needs, even though I think he wants a fluffy puppy, this is not a fluffy puppy, but this is somebody that is more his speed. I, yeah, I can't talk about it too much because I'll start crying because I'd like to keep creature if I could, but four dogs is too much. But I'm I'm glad I get to play dog matchmaker, though. It's kind of fun. I'm not going to pick up any more dogs after this. I'm done. I'm tapping out. She says that now. Yeah. So anyways, how are you doing, Kevin? I'm good. I am a little bit drunk again. Uh-oh. Yeah, Jameson's this time. We've been watching this show, Brotherhood, and one of the guys is always drinking Jameson's. Actually, they're all drinking Jameson pretty much any Well, they're time. Irish guys. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty good show. Yeah. I'm, I'm into it. It makes me want to watch it. Get like, into it. It makes me want to watch um, a lot more like mob stuff. Now I, I want, want to drink more whiskey. Yeah, I know. Every single time we sit down to watch Brotherhood, you get the Jameson out. It's pretty funny. Well, you keep getting me giant jugs of whiskey. So I know. I'm going to stop. Don't. Don't okay. ever stop. <laughs> That's what happens when I go to Costco. I just like buy a bunch of things so I don't ever have to go back. She's a really my kind of doomsday prepper. Yeah, lots of Jameson. And steaks. So it is almost the end of April, and so we wanted to kind of just talk about how April is this kind of hectic, crazy month. Like we were saying last week, there's a lot of like remembrances, you know, Columbine, Virginia Tech, which we're going to talk about today. What else did we talk about last week? We talked about the Oklahoma City bombing 
So tell us about April. If you didn't know, April is the coolest month. Breeding lilacs out of dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. And that's a selection from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland. T.S. Eliot wrote this famous poem, The Wasteland, in the aftermath of the last global pandemic to shut down the world. He and his wife caught the Spanish flu in 1918, and he wrote much of the poem during his recovery. Between 1918 and 1920, as many as 100 million people across the globe died from the Spanish flu. We'll see where this COVID thing goes, but it's kind of weird that we're in another global pandemic. It's uh, not that weird. It's about 100 years later. Yeah. We're due for something. Anyways, is April actually the cruelest month? It marks the beginning of the highest crime season, but I have a list of shit that's happened in April that'll make you glad you're on house arrest. April 8th, Passover starts. Well, this year anyways, not sure if it changes, but that was all about a plague in Egypt, sacrificing your firstborn, lamb blood on the door, yada yada. April 10th, 33 AD, Jesus was crucified. April 15th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. So nothing happened between 33 AD and 1865. Not one thing. 1906, San Francisco, the great earthquake that happened there. 3,000 people died. Mm -hmm. Also, the sinking of the Titanic happened in April, April 14th. April 16th, 1947, Port of Texas City explosion. So, a ship full of improperly stored ammonium nitrate fertilizer exploded. And it caused a chain reaction that blew up other ships and freight. The explosion killed at least 581 people and set the stage for the very first class action lawsuit. It was the largest industrial disaster in U.S. history. April 17th through the 19th, 1961, the Bay of Pigs invasion. April 18th, 1983, the United States Embassy bombing in Beirut. 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 Sorry, Beirut. Ruby Ridge was in April. April 19th, 1993, the Branch Davidian fire. Which is Waco. Waco, yeah. yeah. Which I gotta, I gotta watch that this week on Netflix. April 19th, 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing. That happened. April 19th, 1995, the Oklahoma City bombing happened. And Timothy McVeigh, all that. The deadliest act of terrorism in U.S. history until 9-11. It's still the deadliest act of domestic terrorism. April 20th, 1999, the Columbine Massacre happened. The BP oil spill happened April 20th, 2010. And that was the worst environmental disaster in U.S. history. The Boston Marathon bombing, April 15th, 2013. 2013 also had the Texas fertilizer plant explosion. April 15th, 2019, Notre Dame Cathedral burned. I was just there the last summer and... It's being rebuilt and stuff, but it's crazy. Like, such an iconic building that's been there for 850 years. And uh, the roof is all gone. That main steeple fell. The two big facades in the front are still there. But, like, all everything else is gone. I mean, the walls and all that, is still, but it was, like, the roof and all that shit. And then April 30th of every year we have, so it's coming up, Walpurgis knocked. 
or Hexenacht, or simply Witches' Night, where witches and warlocks gather in the mountains of Germany to take mushrooms and dance around bonfires, heralding the spring and sacrificing for a plentiful harvest. Doesn't sound too bad. It's kind of like a springtime Halloween, where the veil between the dead and the living is the thinnest. A favorite among Satanists as well. So I don't know what's up with April, but watch your back. But this week, we're going to focus on the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. That is, up until the Orlando Pulse nightclub shooting that claimed 49 lives, which then was topped off the next year with the Las Vegas Strip shooting with that Stephen Paddock guy opening fire from a 32nd floor window of the Mandalay Bay Hotel. So Virginia Tech was the worst. And then in 2016 and 2017, the record, unfortunately, was beaten. But Virginia Tech... (laughs) When you say the record, it sounds like... I know. Like, it's a good thing, and it's not. It's like saying, like, you know, the most prolific serial killer. It's like... I hate to attach, like, positive words to horrific crimes... So I'll just stick with the worst, meaning the most fatalities. It is the worst. That Mandalay Bay thing is pretty fishy. It's super fishy. And, you know, maybe we'll do it one of these times. Mass shootings are kind of rough to cover. There's a couple that I I just I think one of the reasons that podcasts don't cover it is because it's just the death toll is so high. And it's usually just by the hands of one or two people who have just fucking lost it. Like killing sprees, mass shootings, like fuck the the toll that it takes in such a short amount of time by such a sick individual or individuals. It's it, it's mind boggling. Virginia Tech, it's still the worst school shooting of all time. Do you know how many lives it claimed? Thirty three. Yes. Most places will say thirty two because there were thirty two murders. And then he, there's one suicide. Right. Yeah. A lot of people don't count him in the count. I can see why. The Pulse nightclub and the Mandalay Bay shootings, both of the perpetrators were also taken out. Often they know that they don't have a fucking chance. So they usually kill themselves at the end of it, it seems like. So I want to start off talking about Virginia Tech by reading the victims' names and kind of who they were. You know, unfortunately, we're going to get a shit ton of information about the shooter and we're going to get minimal information about the victims. Like, that's just how it is. You know, that's just how true crime works, is that we we seek to understand the perpetrator and sometimes don't have time to talk about the victims or the victims' families don't want their loved ones to be remembered like that. Yeah. To be connected to the crime like that. I don't know. Privacy's a pretty big thing. Yeah, and so that's why I'm going to say their names and, like, what they were studying or, you know, who they were to some extent. But I don't want that to mean that, like, that's all that they were. They were somebody's brother, sister, uncle. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's why, like, this is always really tough. But I did want to read the names. There was Ross A. Almadine, who was a sophomore studying English and French from Saugus, Massachusetts. Then there was Christopher James Bishop, a German instructor from Blacksburg, Virginia. And it's significant to also mention that five of the people shot and killed were instructors and 27 of them were students. Brian R. Blum was a master's student in civil engineering from Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Ryan Christopher Clark was a senior studying biological sciences, English, and psychology, and was from Martinez, Georgia. 
Austin Michelle Cloyd, a sophomore, was studying French and international studies, also from Blacksburg, Virginia. Jocelyn Couture Novak or Nowak was a French instructor from Blacksburg. Kevin P. Granada was a professor of engineering science and mechanics and biomedical engineering and sciences from Blacksburg. Matthew Gregory Gwaltney was a master's student studying environmental engineering from Chesterfield. Caitlin Miller Hammerin was a sophomore, international studies in French from Westtown, New York. Jeremy Michael Herbstritt was a master's student studying civil engineering from Belafonte, Pennsylvania. Rachel Elizabeth Hill was a freshman studying biological sciences in French from Glen Allen. Emily Jane Hilscher was a freshman studying animal and poultry sciences from Woodville. Jarrett Lee Lane was a senior studying civil engineering from Narrows. Matthew Joseph Laporte was a sophomore studying political science in French from Dumont, New Jersey. Henry J. Lee was a sophomore studying computer engineering and French from Roanoke. Oh, and one thing that you'll notice is that a lot of them were studying French. He shot up a French class. Le Vieux Lebrescue was a professor of engineering science and mechanics from Blacksburg. G.V. Longin Nathan was a professor of civil and environmental engineering, Blacksburg. Partahi Mamora Halomoan Lumbantoram was a PhD student studying civil engineering from Jakarta, Indonesia. Lauren Ashley McCain was a freshman studying international studies and German from Hampton. Daniel Patrick O'Neill was a master's degree student studying environmental engineering from Lincoln, Rhode Island. Juan Ramon Ortiz Ortiz was a master's student studying civil engineering from Puerto Rico. Minai Ralal Panchal was a master's student studying architecture from Mumbai, India. Daniel Alejandro Perez Cueva was a junior studying international studies in French from Woodbridge. Aaron Nicole Peterson was a freshman studying international studies and French from Centerville. Michael Stephen Pohl Jr. was a senior studying biological sciences and German from Flemington, New Jersey. Julia Kathleen Pride was a master's degree student studying biological systems engineering from Middleton, New Jersey. Mary Karen Reed was a freshman in interdisciplinary studies in French from Annandale. Rima Joseph Samaha was a freshman studying public and urban affairs in French in, from Centerville. Walid Mohammed Shalan was a PhD student studying civil engineering from Blacksburg, but originally from Egypt. Leslie Geraldine Sherman was a junior studying history, international studies, and French from Springfield. Maxine Shelley Turner was a senior studying chemical engineering in German from Vienna. And last is Nicole Regina White, a junior in international studies in German from Smithfield. Whew. Yeah, that's cool. In that's fucking list. nine minutes. And we'll talk about that. There's, It's more than just nine minutes, but 
essentially almost every fucking person on that list, all those futures in all of those fields, especially in the fields of a lot of like linguistic studies and biomedical and just fucking like in nine fucking minutes. Yeah, that's crazy. I know. I, I just think about like how fucking stressful college is and how every day you're just like, I just got to make it through one more day and get this degree and make my parents proud. And just you're working your ass off. And the last thing on earth that you expect is to fucking go to your French class and get fucking shot by a piece of shit that could have been stopped fucking months, years before there were red that day. Flags. And we're going to talk about the red flags. It's just, again, I'm not trying to say that college student or like an educated person's life is worth more or anything like that. But like, I very much put myself in that position. The school that I went to had two horrendous mass shootings directly before and directly after I went to the school. So I was in that, you know, small window of time where there was no mass shootings at UCSB. But right before was David Adius, uh, who was known as the angel of death. And he killed a bunch of people. And then directly after me was probably the shooter that this shooter that we're going to talk about is most closely related to, which is Elliot Rogers. And he shot up a bunch of people and killed himself as well a couple years after I graduated. So I think that was 2007, maybe. I feel like maybe it was sooner, maybe like 2011. I graduated in 2005. And David Adias happened in 2001. But I also, I graduated college a year early because I had to get the fuck out of there. Because again, like, it is a stressful, very, very, very difficult crammed part of your life if you do decide to go study and again like you do crazy shit in college like you put yourself in harm's way just hoping that you can get through another day like there were times where I slept in my car or slept in the 24-hour study room it basically was like living in the library in my car because all I was doing was like working my fucking ass off on two hours of sleep and to just have this fucking piece of shit come in there and ruin your entire future and your entire life. Again, I just like it's I put myself in that position and this one affects me so much. One, because he's Asian and I and we'll talk about that. It's a very, very, very rare thing for a mass shooter to be anything other than a heterosexual white male. And he's he wasn't like he we'll talk about his background, but like it hits me there where you it's heard like, him talk. Yeah, at the beginning. But it hits me in this place of like, you know, I'm an Asian American. He was an a- first generation Asian immigrant from Korea. And like a lot of really intense stuff is put on Asian students, especially like um, who are first and second generation students from another country, especially from Asia. So like, I don't know, I, I feel a lot of anger and resentment and sympathy and pity for this dude that we're going to talk about. I don't know. I just this this one hit me kind of hard researching it because it's just it pisses me off. So let's talk about this piece of shit. You ready? Let's do it. Okay. let's get pissed off. Okay, so Cho Sung Hui. We double check that. Yep. Was born in South Korea on January 18th, 1984. And again, I think it also kind of hits me, too. He's like three weeks younger than me. Like, our, we are born the same year as well. When Cho was about eight years old, he and his family came to the country. They eventually settled in a modest $400,000 home in Centerville, Virginia, 
where they ran a dry cleaning business. Joe was known as a painfully shy child who liked basketball and did well in school. Cho's maternal great-aunt, Kim Yang-soon, described Cho as quote-unquote cold and a cause of family concern from as young as eight years old, according to Kim. And she's actually one of the ones, she's pretty much the only one who gets regularly interviewed. She's living in South Korea still, and I I think there's less fear of, you know, being very public with her image because no one's going to come, like, knocking on her door or anything. But she is probably the most visible of all of his family members, um, when you look at like interviews and stuff, like you'll never see his family come out. They came out with like a statement and they were just like completely appalled. And they just said that every day is living in a nightmare. And so they're very, very private. They do not want to be interviewed at all. So the only person who really does seem to be okay with being interviewed is his great aunt. And she's, she's so sweet. Like her and her family in South Korea, they pray for the families of the victims like every single day. And they just said that they feel so like it's so unreal that it happened and that they're so sorry every single day and they pray for their families. It's so it's so incredibly sad what he not only did to all the victims families, but his own family, too, because they're victims as well. Absolutely. So according to Kim, who met him only twice Cho was, ex- well, and that's probably why she's okay with talking about him. She didn't, like, they weren't super him, close. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Cho was extremely shy and, quote, just wouldn't talk at all. He was otherwise considered well-behaved, readily obeying verbal commands and cues. The great aunt said she knew something was wrong after the family's departure for the United States because she heard frequent updates about Cho's older sister, but little news about Cho. So Cho's older sister, again, like his immediate family doesn't get talked about too, too much. But the one thing I do know about her is that she did love her brother and she graduated top of her class and went to Princeton and she works in like state government. Like she's she's very, very, very bright. And so that somewhat can shed a light on maybe being playing second fiddle to his sister. But again, I I saw nothing about sibling rivalry or anything like that. I think that she was very modest about her achievements and that she loved her little brother. I don't think she ever tried to like throw it in his face or anything. During a New Year's telephone call in 2006, Cho's mother told the elderly aunt that Cho might have autism, developmental Disability marked by profound social I- social isolation and delayed speech acquisition. No autism diagnosis could be verified with Cho's parents, and no records or other evidence have surfaced that indicate this diagnosis by any U.S. school authorities. They mostly just thought this because he was very strange. He was diagnosed with something called selective mutism. Selective mutism. Sounds like selective assholeism. Yeah. So basically, what from what I got from the very few documentaries I could find on this was that it put in situations where he felt uncomfortable or pressured or shy. He couldn't speak. I know. And like, we'll talk more about that. In high school, Cho was described as sullen and aloof. Classmates said that he seemed to go out of his way to not talk, which also came off as being somewhat arrogant. It was hard to tell since he just wouldn't talk. 
there was this one interview I watched with these two um, African-American women who were his classmates. And he, I think, often tried to kind of, and again, this is me just reading into it. I think that he would kind of put himself with kids of color. I think that he would kind of avoid the pretty white rich kids because obviously he has issues with them, although that's not who he targeted necessarily in the shootings. He just targeted anyone kind of similar to what's Eric and Dylan. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, the The Columbine shooters. No, they were not trench coat mafia. Just so you know, completely separate thing. Just so you know. I, that was what everyone called them. I know. The media said that before they, yeah. So that I, was a different gang? Completely different. So in the interview with the two African-American women, they were kind of defending him, which was a little awkward because they were like, he was so painfully shy and we tried so hard to be his friend and we thought he was kind of sweet and he had this kind of side smile thing and we just felt bad for him. And so we always sat by him in class and we, whenever we had group work, we did our group work with him. And I feel like he just he seemed to maybe gravitate towards other people who he may have deemed as other maybe social outcasts for some reason. And I think that white people, especially like maybe quote unquote pretty white people, I think made him incredibly uncomfortable. So the very few times he did speak, I think he felt somewhat comfortable talking to these two black girls in his class. But they said he never, ever talked to anybody else. The teacher would ask him a direct question and he would just look at the teacher blankly. And like he would literally (laughs) he would literally just like whisper to the black girls like. If he ever decided to say anything, which in the interview that I watched with them, they they were like, we felt really bad for the him. And they said we never saw him get bullied because everybody kept saying that this selective mutism, his anger towards everyone, it's because he was bullied all the time. And she was they were like, dude, we never saw him get bullied. And we saw him like all four years of high school. So they were a little like miffed by that. But. In other accounts I found, which, I mean, obviously they weren't around him all of the time, but there were other high school classmates who, interestingly enough, were white, and they were like, yeah, we saw him get bullied. So, again, like, it is interesting just racially, like, the difference in interviews when white people were being interviewed versus people of color getting interviewed about him. They would see or experience or notice different things about him. So a high school classmate, a white dude, said that a teacher once threatened in front of the class to give him a failing grade for not participating. And so he started reading in this strange, deep voice that sounded uh, like he had something in his mouth. Kind of like how he does at the beginning a little bit. He talks like that anyways. Yeah, like he's brushing his teeth and he left the toothbrush in there. Huh. <laughs> he said the whole class started laughing and pointing and saying, go back to China. So again, like that's something so that, that one. A, a white guy said that. A white guy said that, said that he noticed that. But again, it could have been a completely different class that he wasn't. So was it like. Also, he's not Chinese. I just want to point that out yeah, there. I know. He's from Korea. We're not all the same. So was it like the white people that were saying that he was bullied? Yeah. And it seemed like the two black women that were being interviewed were saying that they never noticed him get bullied. But again, maybe he felt maybe he was protected by other 
maybe minority groups that maybe helped him not get bullied. I, I, I might be reading into this too much, but it is interesting from the different interviews what people perceived when being around him because the two black girls were like, yeah, we never noticed anything. And then all of the white people being interviewed were like, yeah, he got bullied. People told him to go back to China. He definitely walked with his head down. Like, it's just interesting. You know what I mean? So another classmate, Stephanie Roberts, stated that there was just some people who were really cruel to him and that they would push him down and laugh at him. He didn't speak English very well, and they really made like to make fun of him. And so he chose invisibility, even though by being invisible or mute, it actually attracted a lot more attention, I think. Neighbors would spot him shooting baskets by himself. When they said hello, he ignored them as if they were not there. Abdul Sash, a next-door neighbor, said it looked like he had a broken heart. Christopher Comchard and Carmen Blandin, former classmates of Cho, stated that they heard rumors of a quote-unquote hit list of other students Cho wanted to kill. Blandin stated that he saw the list as a joke at the time. And this is probably yeah, I mean, at least six years before he went to Virginia Tech. Who, whose friends haven't had a kill list? Don't say that. That's terrible. Obama I, had one. Okay. He's not your friend. To uh, address his problems, Cho's parents took him to church. But there, he was also bullied, especially by the rich kids. And I don't know who that's according to. I think that's from a New York Times article I read. He graduated high school in 2003 and went on to study at Virginia Tech University. Now, something I want to say about Virginia Tech. It is a state-run school, meaning it's not-for-profit. Okay, you actually need to be smart to get in there. Not just anyone gets in there. I don't know what their acceptance rate is, but it's a fairly prestigious school. You get in there on merit, not status necessarily. And it's a huge public campus. There's like 30,000 students there. So a lot of people were really, really concerned about him going there because he had definitely had some counseling and a lot of teachers be worried about him. And so a lot of people were like, You know, this is a place that he could definitely get lost in and not get the help that he needs. But because he was a minor, when a lot of the things were diagnosed and they don't have to, the school didn't have to hand over or actually legally couldn't hand over stuff to the new new university, Virginia Tech, he was a completely clean slate student when he got there. (laughs) Don't you love that kind of bureaucracy? I get it for privacy reasons, because if you have like one or two indiscretions that I mean, what youth doesn't have a couple indiscretions in high school, whether it's cheating or getting into a fight or cutting yourself or something, something that is temporary and a quote unquote phase, making sure that that stuff isn't disclosed and being able to kind of start anew as an adult, you know, an 18 year old college student. I get that. And, like, he wasn't displaying violent shit. He was only maybe seen as, like, maybe a danger to himself more so. But, again, like, I think that the most thing, the thing that got pointed out the most while he was in high school was the fact that he was extremely quiet. Like, do you need to disclose that? Or that he has selective mutism. Like, do you need to disclose that to the new university because you think he's going to be a mass shooter? Sounds like the perfect student to me. Yeah, it's the quiet one Doesn't that you've got to be careful of. Always. 
Located in Blacksburg, Virginia, the school has an extensive campus with, like I said, 30,000 students residing there. Cho stood out as a near-silent loner who wrote gruesome poems, stories, and plays. Oh, my God. I don't know what I was watching, but these actors, like, performed one of the plays that he wrote called, like, I think it was called Mr. Brownstone or something. Oh, my fucking God. It was painful to listen to. I don't know. I, I had to finally turn it off. I don't know. It was terrible. He is not a good writer. <laughs> I wonder if there's any correlation with that Guns N' Roses song, Mr. Brownstone. Maybe. He liked rap. So I don't know. In class, some students thought that he might be a deaf mute. A classmate once offered him $10 just to say hello, but got nothing. He hunched there in sunglasses, a baseball cap yanked tight over his head. Sometimes Mr. Cho introduced himself as question mark. (laughs) We'll get into that more later. Saying it was the persona of a man who lived on Mars and journeyed to Jupiter. On the sign-in sheet of a literature class, he simply scribbled a question mark instead of his name. So sometimes he was referred to as question mark. Isn't that fucking annoying? That's not going to draw attention. (laughs) So he went to Jupiter and Mars, but... Oh, you'll hear more about space in just a moment. Okay, good. During the fall of 2005, so a lot of this information I'm going to get from his sweet mate, Andy Coke, I'm assuming. Looks like cock to me. uh, I'm going to say Coke. Cock. So during the fall of 2005, Andy Coke, Cho's sweet mate, took Cho out to some parties at the start of the fall semester in 2005. At one party, Cho got quote unquote tipsy enough that he opened up and began talking about his virtual love life. He said he had an imaginary girlfriend named Jelly and that she was a quote-unquote supermodel that lived in space and that Jelly had a nickname for Cho, Spanky. (laughs) Gross. Andy Koch, along with John Ida, snooped in Cho's belongings and found nothing more threatening than a pocket knife. One time when Andy returned to their suite, Mr. Cho shooted him away. He told him Jelly was there. He said she, oh yeah, Spanky Jelly became his instant (laughs) message screen name. (laughs) I had to get that all out before you interrupted. The most disgusting, fucking Jelly. Jelly. Oh, fucking gross. That's their nicknames. That's his imaginary space girlfriend. That's what happens when he thinks about, like, fucking, I don't know, (laughs) whatever Though Cho started off as a business major, I think it was like business information systems or something, he got the creative writing bug during the summer after his freshman year of college. So this is the summer of 2004. He came home and he told his family, (laughs) this shit. I mean, like, this is why it's like, I wouldn't spanky jelly and, you know, coming home and wanting to write a romance novel, you know, He's someone that you can laugh at, you know, and kind of make fun of. That's the dangerous part is that he's quietly planning your demise as you laugh at how fucking ridiculous he is. So like I said, summer of 2004, he came home excited, happy. He wanted to write a romance novel. 
his family was like, what the fuck? You know, like here, like our painfully weird, shy child is coming back yeah. in the summer and wanting to write a fucking romance novel. That's weird. With a and- handful of jelly. So they wanted to be supportive of him. So another thing that he did, because maybe he was, you know, getting the support of his family and he felt confident for the first time in his life. Again, this is me guessing. He changed his major from business to creative writing. He was going to get an English degree instead. His family just seemed happy that he was being productive and hoped that he had snapped out of his weirdness and selective mutism that he was earlier diagnosed with. Yeah. From mute to thespian. Yes. It's very weird. (laughs) Although I will say a lot of the kind of like theater kids in high school, those are the painfully shy ones because it's like the one that acting out a persona is easier than being yourself. Everyone in drama class. You took a drama class? No. Oh. (laughs) But everyone, like all those drama people are all suspicious. They're sus as fuck. (laughs) Any one of those fuckers can snap at any And moment. they all listen to true crime podcasts. And you they all shut it off now. Thanks. If we got any Mean Girl fans out there. Mean Girls. Have you seen that movie, Mean Girls? No. It's fucking good. I'm going to make you watch it tomorrow. Okay. There, there's the part where they're like the weird theater kids. And he's got the piece of baloney over his face. And he's like. Rah, 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 rah. I'm glad that I don't know what you're talking about. I know you will tomorrow. Okay. Good. And for all of the listeners who know what I'm talking about, you just left. So during the fall of 2005, he took a creative writing slash poetry class with, and I had to like do a triple take on this. His fucking professor was Nikki Giovanni, which she's this critically acclaimed, extremely esteemed amazing black poet who is so prolific it's crazy like i can't fucking believe that that was his teacher i would kill well no i should take that back (laughs) (laughs) really i would not kill okay i would love how about that i would love to take a fucking poetry class with nikki giovanni I, like, know her poems by heart. She's a fucking, she's very, very, she's a big fucking deal. She gives you a handful of jelly. (laughs) (laughs) I got a handful of jelly for Nikki Giovanni. She's still alive. She's, like, in her 70s. I think she has retired since then. I think about this, like, I, I do put Nikki Giovanni up on a pedestal. I mean, I studied her in college. I studied her during my master's degree for English. Like, she's a fucking big deal. And when I think about this little shit in her, like, he's a sophomore. He just switched majors. He's a shit writer. Being in her class, I fucking get angry. Anyways, and now all of that being said, (laughs) Professor Giovanni did not want to fucking deal with this dude. Like, she gave him five weeks, and then she went to Lucinda Roy, who is, I think, kind of like a department chair director of the creative writing study studies program at the time. And she was like, get this fucking kid out of my class. Like she I think she was maybe a little bit of a superstar, like like Angela Davis or a lot of times when you get kind of like high octane fuel at your campus, like professor wise, they can act like a hotshot a little bit. And I think she's basically like, yeah, I don't like this fucking kid's poetry. Get him the fuck out of my class. I said green Skittles only, motherfucker. (laughs) 
She requested that Cho either change the sinister content of his poems or drop the class. Cho responded with, you can't make me. <laughs> He's such a little fucking shit. <laughs> no, I'm surprised he didn't respond with, nuh-uh. Nuh-uh, you stink, you know. Yeah. Like I said, she went to Lucinda Roy, who actually had Cho as a student in an earlier term. And I think that she was potentially the like an inspiration to get him to switch majors. And again, Nikki Giovanni, Lucinda Roy, both women of color, both black women, I believe. I, I know for a fact that Nikki Giovanni is. Lucinda Roy, I believe, is at least partially. Again, like I feel like he either feels comfortable with or maybe kind of aligns himself with other people of color, feeling more comfortable and in his skin or being able to express himself. I don't know. I just... It just kind of did keep coming up when I was doing the research that it does seem like he may be opened up to specifically women of color if he ever did open up, which was very rare. So Professor Giovanni did have him removed from class, but and she told Time magazine that there was something mean about this boy, that he was a bully. She actually called him the bully and always came to class wearing sunglasses and a hat. She would always ask him to remove it. Then, and I don't know if this was totally at the same time in Nikki, Nikki Giovanni's class or not, but he started around this time photographing girls' legs and like under regions underneath the tables, like with flash on. And with the so, flash on? Yeah, I don't think he was fucking subtle at all. Like he was not, <laughs> not a subtle guy for being such a selective mute who uh, didn't want to stand out. He was a fucking What a fucking oogle. Yeah. I don't think that that was the same claim in the same class. I think it was just like, I think that he like consistently was getting like, this guy's creepy. I don't like him. He takes pictures when girls clearly don't know what's going on and stuff. So Lucinda Roy actually ended up tutoring him one-on-one to basically make up the credit. I don't think he could drop the class in time in order to like get a passing grade or something. So she met with him and she even gave him a copy of her book and I think that he really, like, looked up to Lucinda Roy because, one, he was successful at least in one of her classes. And then, two, when Nikki Giovanni kicked him out of her class, Lucinda Roy took him under her wing. And actually, as an esteemed professor who probably has a shit ton of stuff to do, she actually offered to, like, tutor him one-on-one so he could finish the credit in the class. Yeah, that's weird. And again, out of all of the interviews, kind of similar to like his great aunt and stuff, Lucinda Roy is the one instructor who will always be interviewed for him because she actually knew him to some extent. And I think she actually really tried to encourage him. She did refer him to counseling um, and notified the Division of Student Affairs, the Cook Counseling Center, or the Schiffert Health Center, and the Virginia Tech Police and the College of Liberal Liberal Arts and Human Sciences. Like, she notified all of those avenues as, like, this is a disturbed child. Like, this is a disturbed kid who needs counseling. And she referred him to counseling. So he was in counseling. And he was constantly being referred to. So he was very much, I think, Lucinda Roy took him. He was on the radar. Yeah, and she took him on as her, like, issue. And that's, I think, oh, okay. one of the reasons why she is so readily available to be interviewed is that, like, she, she was, feels, like, like, she feels, exactly, yeah. she feels responsible for him. 
So in a fall writing class, Professor Lisa Norris alerted the associate dean of students, Mary Ann Lewis, about Cho. The dean said that they could find no mention of uh, mental health issues or police reports on him. So whatever efforts Lucinda Roy made in making sure that he was reported to all of these avenues, anytime a new report would come out or a new like inquiry about him, there was no paper trail. So that it, it was just like he was always like a first time offender. Like there was no right. there was no pattern being yep. established, unfortunately. In the fall of 2006, a female student filed a report with the Virginia Tech campus police indicating that Cho had made, quote, annoying contact with her on the Internet, by phone and in person. The investigating officer referred Cho to the school's disciplinary system, the Office of Judicial Affairs, which is separate from the police department. Only a month later, another female student, a friend of Andy Cock, filed a report with Virginia Tech campus police complaining of disturbing instant messages from Cho. She requested that Cho, quote, have no further contact with her. Immediately after, Virginia Tech campus police notified Cho that he was to have no further contact with the female student. After Virginia Tech campus police left, Andy Coke, Cho's roommate, received an instant message from Cho stating, quote, I might as well kill myself now. So in response to receiving the instant message from Cho, Andy notified the resident advisor and phoned Cho's father. Andy and his father alerted Virginia Tech campus police that Cho had sent Andy a suicidal instant message. Virginia Tech campus police took Cho off campus to a voluntary counseling evaluation at New River Community Services, where he was examined by Kathy Goodbay. Goodbay determined that he was, quote, mentally ill and in need of hospitalization. Cho's paperwork declaring Cho, quote, an imminent danger to self or others was sent to court. Cho was transported to Carilion St. Albans Psychiatric Hospital, where psychologist Roy Krauss determined that Cho, quote, is mentally ill, that he does not present an imminent danger to himself or others, or is not substantially unable to care for himself as a result of mental illness, and that he does not require involuntary hospitalization. That's so fucked that one psychologist... Kathy Goodbay says he needs to fucking be hospitalized. This guy's losing it. And then like literally like the same day or very soon after another one is like, he, he, he doesn't need to be here. That's fucking crazy. It's weird. It's super weird. So I bet fucking Roy Krause is kicking himself. Soon after Cho was released from Carilion St. Albans Psychiatric Hospital after his examination by Roy Krause. I just want to take this time you. out and say <laughs> I really want to say Carilion St. Albans Psychiatric Hospital 10 more times in this episode. <laughs> Shit. So Joe's paperwork was sent to Special Justice Paul M. Barnett, who certified the finding and ordered follow-up treatment. So, yeah, like it's being moved from campus police to real police to psychiatrists and psychologists now moving up into the court system where they're going to. And lo and behold, there's going to be a communication breakdown. 
Because there's way too many fucking cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. And like they're not and they're not complimentary. Yeah. Neither the court, the university nor community services officials followed up on the judge's order. According to dozens of interviews, Cho never got the treatment, according to authorities who have seen his medical files. On Friday, February 2nd, 2007, February 2nd. Yeah. Your birthday. I know. I didn't want you to say that because it's not connected to anything nice. (laughs) (laughs) He purchased the 22 caliber Walther P22 on the Internet. A week later, Cho picked up the 22 caliber Walther from a pawn shop in Blacksburg, Virginia, across the street from the school. In March of 2007, Cho stayed in a Roanoke motel and hired a dancer, Chastity Fry. Mm-hmm. Chastity Fry. Ooh, that's a spicy name. For a one-hour performance. So, really, after, basically, he gets the psychological evaluation that, you know, like, you need to be hospitalized. No, you don't. Judges get involved. After that, starting on February 2nd with the gun purchase online, it's all downhill from there. Now you're going to see all of the very fucking meticulous planning for two and a half months that this fucking psycho, and 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 I don't think he was ever, like, diagnosed as psychotic, that this fucking piece of shit these are all the little so, dominoes that he's putting in he place. He was autistic as fuck, obviously. Well, he was not diagnosed with autism, no. Look at the way he acts. This is what people don't know what to do with this guy. And that, I think, is one of the reasons. And I don't even think that they really know what to do with the Columbine shooters either. Because the easy narrative, like you said earlier, was, oh, they were just weird gothic kids that got bullied. Bullshit. That is not true. I get the two mixed up, but one was severely depressed and was a loner. And the other one was popular. Like he played sports. They hung out. They went to the prom the week before Columbine. They were not. It's an easier narrative to be a weirdo gothic loser. To be like Damien Eccles or something wearing all black and the Metallica shirts or whatever. And, you know, black eyeliner and the cutoff gloves and whatever. It's an easier narrative. This kid did not fit any of those narratives. He did. He had a history of mental illness, and that's about it. Like, he does not fit what is like easy. Like classic profiles. Exactly. He doesn't. And that's why I think he, he's a mindfuck a little bit for, well, like, he investigators. Was, he was a fucking nutter. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He, he was a loner. He was weird. He had mental health issues, and he spent a lot of time online. And if you listen to the, his internet speeches or whatever you want to call them he blames he's just projecting all this like yeah he's projecting insecurities or whatever like he's just a weak little beta fuck and uh he should have uh just shot himself instead of shooting other people yeah which he eventually did i just don't know why he needed all these take out 32 people before taking out himself i get the frustration but just shoot your fucking self um, well, that was not a direct request. <laughs> That's just, we're talking to him specifically, not you. Anyone thinking about going into a crowd and shooting just random people? Just fucking don't shoot do yourself. Yeah. Uh, or no, how about better yet, get some fucking help? No, just shoot yourself. Okay. Save everyone the time and money. Uh, a month after hiring Chastity 
Fry. Cho rented a burgundy Kia Sedona. He's really living on the wild side. <laughs> well, it is a Korean car. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, way to be loyal. And he kept the car for almost a month. Cho videotaped some of his diatribe in the van. So the stuff that... It's a must-see yeah. TV. Ugh. Not really. On Tuesday, March 13th, Cho purchased a 9mm Glock 19 handgun and a $10 box of 59mm full metal jacket rounds of ammunition. On Thursday, March 22, he showed up at the PSS range, an indoor pistol range in Roanoke, and spent an hour practicing buying four ammunition magazines for the Glock 19. Range employees, investigators said, remembered a young Asian man videotaping himself inside a van in the parking lot. Then, on eBay, Cho purchased two 10-round magazines for the Walther P-22. On Friday, March 23rd, Cho purchased three additional 10-round magazines from another eBay seller located in Fremont, Nebraska. Yeah, so he's just, again, like collecting Stocking all the guns... Up ammunition, magazines from, from both online and in person. So, so again, it's this idea of, like, it's not establishing a pattern. If he was buying from only one dealer, if he was buying all locally or something, you know, like, but he's being really random. He's going to Roanoke. He's not going to places right next to the university. I wonder if he's doing it thinking he won't be tracked or traced. I mean, so he's got this court order that he has to go to counseling. And so I feel like... There is maybe a bit of paranoia that he has that, like, if I do something too close to home, they'll notice and they'll flag me because I should be in mandatory counseling. Yeah. I, I think that he is thinking that. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to put some of the detail in there is that it does it is really kind of random. You know, he's renting cars. He's going to gun ranges like an hour away. He's buying some stuff online. He's buying other stuff in person. Yep. He's outsmarting the cops. Later that same month, Cho rented a room in another local hotel and was visited by a dancer from an escort service. Throughout late March and early April, Cho continued to purchase additional ammunition and a hunting knife from Walmart and Dick's Sporting Goods. He also purchased chains from Home Depot. On Sunday, April 8th, Cho spent the night at the Hampton Inn in Christiansburg, Virginia videotaping segments for his manifesto-like diatribe. On Friday, April 13th, there were anonymous bomb threats called in throughout residence halls and other parts of the school. That was, I just thought, kind of weird. Do you think it was him? Yeah, but I don't understand why. If anything, it would put them on high alert. Yeah, and it would make people leave. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting, so I put that in there. I just liked it because it was Friday the 13th. Ah, Maybe that's, he was trying to be sinister. Yeah, well. On Saturday, April 14th. Oh, this is creepy. Witnesses saw, quote, a suspicious looking man in a hooded sweatshirt or near the entrance of Norris Hall. And some of the doors changed shut around the same time. Many think that this was a dress rehearsal. So remember, he purchased those chains from Home Depot so those are going to play a role in the day of the shooting. It's just crazy that he called, he potentially called in those bomb threats. 
and chained up the doors of the place that he would eventually do that for real. He's drawing all kinds of weird suspicions around. I feel like he's put, it's almost like he doesn't want the plan to work almost, or that he's doing all these things to see what the reaction will be. Because if a bomb threat gets called in and no one really does anything about it, maybe he's like, oh, they're lax. I can fuck shit up. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. Or like, wow, they don't even care about the chains on there. You know what I mean? Like, there's a couple of different ways to look at it. And if it truly is him doing the anonymous bomb threat and obviously probably him doing the chain thing on the doors, I think it's a dress rehearsal to see, like, what kind of response am I going to get mm-hmm. in a couple of days when I do this thing for real? Yeah, it's... It's fu- super creepy. The planning is fucking insane. Yeah. So the next day, April 15th, Sunday... Cho called and spoke to his family in Fairfax County for the last time. They didn't know that anything was up. After all this buildup, we get to the morning of Monday, April 16th at 5 a.m. while in the suite 2120 of Harper Hall, one of Cho's five roommates noticed that Cho was awake and at his computer. He left his room between 5.30 and 6 a.m., at around 7.15 a.m., Emily Hilshire was dropped off at her dormitory by her boyfriend, Carl D. Thornhill. 7.15 a.m., a 911 emergency call to Virginia Tech Campus Police reported a shooting at West Ambler Johnson Hall, leaving Ryan Christopher Clark, the resident advisor, dead and Emily Hilshire fatally wounded. Immediately after... Cho returned to his dormitory room to change his clothes, reload, and generally act like nothing had just happened. About an hour and a half later, Cho mailed a U.S. Postal Service Express parcel to NBC headquarters in New York City, containing pictures of him holding weapons, an 1,800-word diatribe, and a video clip alluding to the coming massacre. That's crazy. Yeah, so he killed two people... Came back, fucking changed and reloaded, then sent off the package. And, like, the police didn't make that connection. At this point, the death toll is, I hate to say only two, but it is only two at this point, you know? Yeah. It could have fucking gotten stopped. So he sent this to NBC Express, but it got to the news station a day later than anticipated because he had written down the wrong zip code. In one of the video clips, he rails against rich, quote, brats and talks about being bullied and picked on. He also attacks Christianity and positions himself as some type of avenger for the weak and defenseless. Cho even referenced the notorious Columbine school shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold, and praised them as martyrs. A lot of it was unintelligible. They aired some of it, mostly the pictures that showed a few of him. A few of these pictures showed him as a happy college student, but mostly consisted of him looking like yeah. L- Lara Croft in Tomb Raider. Like, you know, like the picture with like her with the two guns. Yeah, you know? like some think he was trying to emulate the ultra-violent 2003 Korean action thriller Old Boy. We gotta watch that. You know, I feel like... like I feel like Noah I watched it a long guys, time ago. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it was it a big a deal when it ago. came out. And it was like one of those movies that kind of like started like a whole kind of genre of ultra violent yeah, Asian horror like, films. Like yeah. Gun. Oh, there's Ichi the Killer. That was a big one during that time, too. But that was yeah. from Japan. Yeah. And that's a slightly different style, I think. 
Yeah, but but again, like ultra violent horror—not horror, but just ultra violent. Like, ultra violent. Yeah. Whatever he was trying to do, clearly he was trying to leave an impression. The one that he carefully curated during the weeks and months before the crimes. It was his way of constructing his identity and leaving behind a legacy that resembled nothing of his real life. Investigators from Virginia Tech Police Department and Blacksburg PD arrived. When they went to question Hilscher's roommate, she mentioned that she would spend weekends with her boyfriend Carl Thornhill at his off-campus townhouse. She explained that on Monday mornings he would drop her off and then go off to his university, and also that he was an avid gun user. This led police to seek him out as a quote-unquote person of interest. At 8 a.m., classes at Virginia Tech began. This is where there's a lot of fuckery happening with, like, classes should have been canceled. You know what I mean? Like, two people were just fucking killed, you know? Do they know that? They know that two people are dead and that the gunman is nowhere to be found. That's when you put that shit on lockdown. The school has a responsibility to the students, to the families, to keep this place safe. And if two students of the school have been gunned down in a residence hall on campus, like not like in the neighborhood, but on campus, and they have no idea who the gunman is and what their motive is, they need to put that shit on lockdown. Yeah, totally. Because again, like it's not like school shootings are fucking rare. Seems like there's protocols. So again, at 8 a.m., classes went on as scheduled, even though they already knew at this point that two innocent people have been shot and killed. Police stopped Carl Thornhill in a vehicle off campus and detained him for questioning. At 9.05, Jocelyn Couture Nowak's intermediate French class began in Norris 211. Shortly after the start of class, Cho was seen in Norris Hall, an engineering building. So that's why I think a lot of the victims, you'll, you hear like French and engineering in there, is that that's where he was mostly concentrated. Using chains, possibly the ones he purchased at Home Depot, I would say most likely the ones he purchased at Home Depot, Yeah, he chained the building's entry doors shut from the inside. At 9.26 a.m., emails were sent to campus staff informing them that there was a shooting incident at the West Dormitory. Around 9.30 a.m., a female student walked into Norris 211 and alerted the occupants that a shooting had occurred at that residence hall. At 9.42 a.m., students in the engineering building made a 911 emergency call to alert police that more shots had been fired. At 9.45 a.m., police arrived three minutes later and found that Cho had chained all three entrances shut, so there's no way to get in. That's fucking fucked up. Between 9.40 and 9.51 a.m., using the 22 caliber Walther P-22 and the Glock 19 handgun with 17 magazines of ammunition, Cho shot 47 people, killing 30 of them. Cho's rampage lasted for approximately nine minutes. A student in room 205 noticed the time remaining in class shortly before the start of the shootings. Around 9.40 a.m., students in Norris 205, while attending Heian Chang's issues in scientific computing class heard Cho's gunshots. The students, including Zach Petkowitz, barricaded the door and prevented Cho's entry. Yeah. So Kristen Anderson, who is probably the most vocal survivor of the Virginia Tech massacre, 
she has written and spoken about her ordeal that day a lot. She was actually shot three times and almost died. Much of what I'm going to read is from a newspaper article by Jessica Volker from Seattle, which is where Kristen Anderson ended up moving to, at least for a while or after she graduated from college. And rather than totally just hear a minute by minute breakdown, kind of from the viewpoint of either police or Cho, I really like that this account from the Seattle newspaper is from the Seattle Met. I like that it's from the viewpoint of a survivor. So I'm just going to read a big, big, huge chunk of it, but it's really good. In the car that morning, she floated the idea of skipping class. Didn't breakfast sound better than showing up to French 15 minutes late? But attendance accounted a lot for your grade. So Virginia Tech sophomore Christina Anderson and her friend Colin Goddard slunk into the back corner of their Norris Hall classroom. It was April 16th, 2007, and within a few minutes, the shooter burst into the building and began a killing spree that would claim the lives of 32 people. He strode through Anderson's own class three times. Ugh, he's just making the rounds. On his third loop, the killer took his own life mere feet from Anderson, who, shot three times, lay motionless. When she recovered, the ongoing trauma spurred her to create the Koshka Foundation, devoted to school safety. Anderson, who now lives in Seattle, offers a window into the struggle faced by survivors of mass shootings and the terrible knowledge that endures in their wakes. These are her words. I was born in the Ukraine. In the early 90s, we moved to Sacramento, California. I remember having a lot more earthquake drills. You get under the desk and you don't move until you are released to do so. In our shooting, I stayed low and committed to pretending to be dead the whole time, which served me well. The scariest moments looking back are the first few seconds where I sense something is threatening or escalating or getting closer, but I don't know what it is. Once he walked in, the world changed. I just remember seeing his arms outstretched and a very calm but determined, unemotional face. People often wonder, do they talk? Is there a moment to negotiate? But that's not the time to do that. He shot my back the first time. I describe it as a burning kind of numbness. I was shot twice more, once more in the back and once in my toe. Colin was saying, don't move, don't move. But I pushed myself off the desk and lay on the carpet. Somehow Colin's hand and my hand found each other and we just held hands waiting to be rescued. When police break into an area, they call triage codes. Green is fine. Red is critical. Black means you are deceased. I remember hearing we have a lot of blacks in here. After the shooting, I did cognitive processing therapy at UW, University of Washington. Almost every session was, tell me what happened. Between reading police accounts and interviewing officers, I've been able to piece together what I think happened. We call ourselves the club that no one wants to belong to. Frank DeAngelis, the former principal of Columbine High School, coined it. How do you tell your employer about anniversaries or the next time there's another mass shooting that's similar to yours and you're triggered? A survivor from Columbine lives here in Seattle. We were talking about some projects that I want to do, and I said, isn't it weird to be wanting to do this? And he's like, you were involved in a school shooting. Everything from now on is weird. If people were empathetic and took the time to get to know someone's experience, ask questions, and not be reactive, survivors wouldn't need each other as much. Safety is not a state of being. It's a collection of actions everyone takes part in. 
We need to shy away from using words like this is a safe university, city, or town. In public presentations, I don't talk about the worst parts of being a survivor. It's trying to show that you can find positive lessons in terrible events. But there are moments where I'm crying, learning about other mass shootings, or I have to stop the day because something happened and I need to process it. I met a psychologist who referred to it as terrible knowledge. Once you experience something really painful, it's an innate human need to want to share that with others so that they don't have to go through it. He did have control over who survived and who didn't. By confronting terrorism or active shooters, you're also confronting that you can't control everything in life. I don't want people to forget that 32 people were lost. That is the end of Christina Anderson's account. So I just, I just had a thought. And if someone in the school or in one of these classes also was had a concealed carry or something like that, they could have ended it so much faster. If there was a good guy with a gun, you know? I don't, dude. Nine minutes, 30 people? That's fucking fast. Because, like, things like this happen so fast and there's no time for cops to respond. That's why you gotta, like, be responsible for yourself. That's why it's important to carry a, a weapon. I ha- no. I think That's it's, I my think it's, feeling. I, I think he shouldn't have ever had guns to begin with because he was fucking mentally ill. But that's not the world we live in. People like this have guns. It actually is the world we live in. If if the fucking if there wasn't a communication breakdown, obviously he would have never been able to buy those guns. Too many ifs. No, too many ifs in the concealed carry thing. No, you should. I would not if I was a which I have been. If I was a college professor, I would not feel comfortable if the student had a gun in class. No. Absolutely not. That's putting. You should be the one with the gun. No, no oh, one. Yes. Well, there I've seen you be shoot. No You're guns right. no. allowed on college campuses and in schools, except for maybe school resource officers who are fucking trained to fucking use that shit. Well, and they're if people if if people have a gun, they should obviously know how to use it. I think that the easiest solution is that to begin with. The only people that should have had a gun in this instance at a public university where people are there to learn and not die. The only people that should have guns are campus security and SROs, school resource officers. I agree. That's it. Period. Were there? Nope. A lot of like mass shootings, like stuff that happens like in malls, like in communal areas where everyone's not there for one specific reason, like a lecture hall or something. Like if you go to class, you are going there to learn. You're not doing anything else other than listening to the professor and taking notes. I get it why there's not an armed officer in class. That would make me uncomfortable because like there's no, it's, it's, it's very going to a cafeteria, going to a library, going to a mall, going to like something where not everybody's there focused on one single thing. Like it's like many different things can be happening. I get why there might be an armed officer there, but I will say, like, he targeted, and that's one of the reasons, like, this dude had fucking a high body count because he picked a residence hall and he picked a fucking lecture hall. Yeah. Where the last thing on the earth, door shut. yeah, and the last thing on earth anyone would expect would be a fucking shooter. It didn't happen in, in the school cafeteria. It didn't happen in the library, like, with Columbine. I think Columbine was cafeteria and library. There were communal spaces. Like, they did it during, like, lunchtime, you know? Yeah. So they could get the most amount of bodies. But, like, that's the thing. Like, 
you can easily disperse in a cafeteria. You can't disperse in a tiny classroom. That's why he went boom, 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 boom. Whereas like in the library or the cafeteria of Columbine, they could disperse. Yeah. So again, like apples and oranges, like there's no simple solution to like, it should have been like this because unfortunately it just is what it is. And if everyone did have guns and something like this happened, there would be all I these like other shooters yeah. shooting like in all different directions. It'd so, be like the yeah, Wild West. Exactly. Which it's I don't like know the if Wild you've seen West any movies. It's, it's getting there. It will I be know. soon. Um, it'll be more like Mad Max, I think. So 9.50 a.m. after arriving at Norris Hall, police took five minutes to assemble the proper team. God, five minutes is a fucking long time yeah. if you think about the nine-minute span he had. Yep. So they assemble the proper team, they clear the area, and then break through the doors. They used a shotgun to break through the chained entry doors. Investigators believe that the shotgun blast alerted the gunman to the arrival of the police. The police heard gunshots as they entered the building. They followed the sounds to the second floor. 9.51 a.m., as the police reached the second floor, the gunshots stopped. Cho's shooting spree in Norse Hall had lasted nine minutes. Police officers discovered that after his second round of shooting, the occupants of 211 Norris, the gunman fatally shot himself in the temple. The entire nation was shocked and horrified by the events at Virginia Tech. Up until that point, the largest campus shooting had taken place in 1966, when Charles Whitman killed 15 people on the campus of University of Texas in Austin. Which we went there. We went there. That was one of our first things. Yeah, we wanted to see the clock tower. Yeah, yeah, we went there. We took a tour. Yeah. So there, that is Cho Sung Hui. How do you feel? (sighs) This rabid dog should have been put down way earlier. I agree. But the thing is... Rabid dogs show signs, obvious signs of illness before they start attacking. They start foaming at the mouth and they get all crazy eyed and stuff like he never looked that crazy. He did a lot of his crazy stuff like in his van, in his hotel rooms. He hid a lot of his crazy. The stories Juicy could tell. (laughs) Juicy? Juicy? Jelly. Jelly. Oh, fuck. (laughs) Jelly. Yeah. That's worse. Yeah, ju- juicy's worse. No, jelly is worse. Oh, well, I don't know. Well, it's then more viscous. Yeah, no, it's less viscous. No, it's more viscous. You need to look up the definition of viscosity. <laughs> <laughs> jelly is more viscous than juice. Look it up. Okay. <laughs> You're the teacher. So yeah, I don't feel bad for him at all. He's a piece of shit. The thing that I think that pisses me off the most is the amount people did try to get him help and he adamantly went against it. You know, he was resisting being okay. And I get it. I resist being, you know, like typical. Sometimes. I wouldn't want to be in counseling either. But like, you also don't need it as badly as Cho did. Well, <laughs> as badly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you aren't freaking everyone out. I don't have a virtual girlfriend. It's true. You have a real wife. <laughs> right. IRL. Real life wife. <sighs> so yeah, that's Cho. 
Yeah, you get two thumbs down. Yep. Two big thumbs down from the true crime dumpster family. So you can join our group on Facebook. That always feels so disingenuous, like when we like finish a crime to then be like, join our Facebook group. But do join our Facebook group where we post related pictures for the week's episode and discuss other true crime things. You can see his ugly mug if you go to our Facebook group. You can also follow us on Twitter at TC Dumpster and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com. We also have a website where we post all of our source info, truecrimedumpster.com. Listen to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, and Spotify. Lastly, rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about our podcast. Tune in next time where we talk out the trash. Take care. Bye.